Have you ever had a conversation with a burned out Christian? I have, sadly, more than once. The symptoms are fairly similar in every case I've seen and other pastors I've talked to and read say the same thing. These are the symptoms you run into. A burned out Christian has a loss of care for people. Uh, a lack of energy or purpose uh, can be either or both. Uh, reduced effectiveness in serving, not very effective in serving anymore, and increased cynicism. That last one's particularly difficult and kind of ugly. By the way, by the way, just a few weeks after I wrote those notes down, I wrote that down in my study. The World Health Organization just a couple weeks later released the ICD-11, which is the standard diagnostic guideline for healthcare professionals. They listed burned out as a syndrome and defined it by, wait for it, uh, the Maslach definition of burnout, the WHO, feelings of energy depletion or exhaustion, increased mental distance from one's job or feelings of negativism or cynicism related to the job, reduced professional efficacy. That is remarkably similar to what pastors have been observing for thousands of years in burned out Christians. It's amazing. What confirmation. By the way, many press outlets release stories, just a quick side note, uh, claiming that burnout was now a disease according to ICD-11. That's fake news. The World Health Organization has emphatically stated that burnout is not a disease. Burnout is instead a serious problem that has become a lifestyle issue, a, a syndrome. So what do the medical experts recommend as the proper treatment for burnout? Three things. It's very simple. Three things. Love, mental reorientation or, or, or mental refreshment, and work. Love, mental reorientation, and work. Look at this. Uh, regarding love, Melinda Smith, who's a therapist, says, if you're burned out, reach out, be more sociable, make friends, love. Uh, mental reorientation, Gene Segal, PhD, says, reframe the way, this is well said, reframe the way you look at things. Work. Uh, Suzanne Degas-White, doctor, says, do the things that require you to show up and engage and connect with a cause, says Robert Segal. Love, mental reorientation, and work. That's good advice. And by the way, it has very strong confirmation as well, because that same prescription was actually written by Jesus 1,900 years earlier. He addressed the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, and he said something amazingly similar to what these experts all got degrees to learn. Turn to Revelation chapter 2. It's the easiest book to find in your Bible. It's the last one. Revelation chapter 2, and let's read verses 1 through 7. Write, Jesus says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be liars. I know that you've persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name and have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you've fallen Repent and do, I know it's sad, it's very, yes, repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Do you see it? There it is, from the Lord's own mouth a long, long time ago. Look, love Mental reorientation, which he calls repent and do the works. Love, repent, and work. Just read the Bible. You have any struggles in life? God knows what we need. Now, we're going to get into the details of the rest of the letter to Ephesus, but first let's read the other part of our text. Let's pick up the letter to Smyrna, verse 8, to Smyrna. Write to the angel 
of the church in Smyrna, thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life, I know your affliction and poverty, but you're rich. I know the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. We're learning from two churches this week, although for the rest of this series, we're going to take them one at a time. To help us keep all the ideas straight, I recommend taking advantage of the notes in your bulletin. You got a worship guide when you came in the door, open that up. On the left-hand side, you'll see the first big idea in these letters. Jesus commands John to write <coughs> Ephesus and Smyrna in verses 1 and 8. Now, these commands to write here are a little unusual. You see, normally in the classical world, letters were dictated, but, but they were... They were dictated in a different way than we mean the word dictation. The person who was taking down the dictation had a lot of freedom. In fact, it could go as far as they had freedom to be uh, more of a co-author, uh, an amanuensis, rather than just somebody taking dictation. And, and, and that's why ancient um, leaders would often dictate multiple letters at once. Julius Caesar was very famous. He did this all the time. He had four scribes that followed him around all the time, and he would dictate four letters at a time. Now, there's no way you can dictate four letters at a time, but he would throw out the general idea, and then his scribes would fill it in. Okay, that's the norm. That's not what's happening here. Here we have a rarely used formula that indicates complete dictation. Um, write followed by a thus says. That combination tells us that Jesus is dictating more in our modern sense of the term. He's, he's dictating say these exact words. That type of dictation, here's why this matters. That type of dictation was reserved for official government pronouncements like laws. So Jesus is speaking as the Lord of the kingdom who is addressing his subjects. So to that end, look at how Jesus is described. Ephesus is told that Jesus holds seven stars, walks among seven gold lampstands. Now, I know what you're secretly thinking. In your uh, velvety Adam West imitation, you're wondering, <laughs> yes, Adam West. He passed away this week. That's why Adam West got the nod. He's, you're asking, well, what does that mean? Right, Batman? Um, thank you for asking, Adam. Holding the seven stars means Jesus is God over all creation. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. In context, walking among the seven lampstands indicates a very deep connection to every single local church. He's deeply connected. He's, he's in fellowship with each church. Here's how my pulpit team member Martin McDonald summarized it. He wrote a great note to me. Martin wrote and he said, Wayne, this depiction of Jesus connotes power, knowledge, oversight, protection, and intimacy. Amen. Amen. Very, very beautiful description. Then Jesus describes himself to Smyrna this way, first and last, dead and alive. First and last is a Greek euphemism for the, the sum of everything. Today we would say the be-all, end-all. Okay, that's what first and last means. It's the be-all, end-all. Dead and alive refers to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, and that gives Christians encouragement to stand fast, to endure persecution, knowing that death is not the end of the story for a Christian. Nowhere close. So, that's who Jesus is, or at least a glimpse of small aspects of who he is. He is the Lord, and the Lord encourages. That's the issue in verses 2 and 3 and 6 and 9. Here's the first encouragement. He knows he knows. This may be the most significant statement a human being can hear in this life. The Lord knows. He knows all about us. He understands. Jesus has John record the term uh, Iuda, 
Uh, it's telling that they didn't use gnosko instead, which would have been fine, but gnosko is a word for knowing by physical experience. Gnosko is a, is a Greek word that you would use and choose throughout the Bible for physical interaction and having experience that way. But they used iuda. Uh, iuda is, is different. It describes knowing something fully. You know it fully. You know it well, but it's without having to physically experience it. So, so think that through. That means Jesus knows everything about my life without having to be physically present. And, and this Judas, the word that's used all through Revelation 2 and 3. How important would that have been to those Christians? Think about the people that first received these letters. Almost all of them were born after Jesus ascended. This is written about 90 A.D., a little after 90. He ascends in the 30s. Even those who were old enough to have known Jesus personally were very unlikely to have ever been in his physical presence, right? And yet Jesus knows them all. He knows their, their church communities. He knows their lives. That's really significant. Being known is especially important when we're hurting, right? It is very meaningful when an experienced person who truly understands comes up beside you and says, I know, I know. That kind of care and understanding coming from the Lord God Almighty is absolutely overwhelming. It is life-changing to know that he knows. Amen? Amen. Secondly, Jesus encourages them because they have done right. This is so uplifting. Look at this enumerated list for which these Christians in Ephesus uh, are praised. Uh, good works, hard work. They, do, they, they work hard. He praises them for that. They are steadfast. Steadfast is intolerance for evil. They have a commitment to doctrinal purity, and they have endured hardship and slander for Jesus' name. What a magnificent list on healthy living. Now, I want you to look at that, and let's reflect on those for a moment. Jesus knows us, just as he did these people in Ephesus and Smyrna. Which of these do you think rates God's praise for our congregation? And in which ones are we weak? And what about each of us personally? I want you to listen again to what God loves, and I want you to think through which of these, if any, does Jesus find reason to praise me, to praise you? Is he, is he really excited about your good works? Is God proud of your, of your work ethic, your hard work? How about your steadiness, your steadfastness, your faithfulness, your intolerance for evil? your commitment to doctrinal purity, your endurance of hardship and slander, even slander for Jesus' name. What would God praise in you? Let's pray real quickly. Just pray with me. Lord, I want to stop and pray for just a moment that by your gracious empowerment, each of those, every one of those strengths will be true for every one of us. We ask that we will grow every day into people who are worthy of your encouragement, that because of your empowerment, you have reason to praise us. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, there are two specific questions people always ask. They always ask two things. First, who are the Nicolaitans? All we know from the text is their group name means conqueror of the people, Nikos victory plus Laos people. But thankfully, there's a church leader from Smyrna who explains more for us. His name's Irenaeus. Irenaeus was born about 30 years after Jesus wrote these letters. Uh, Irenaeus came to Christ under the preaching of this guy, Polycarp, who said, it certainly could be true, we have no way of knowing, but he said that he studied under the Apostle John. So with that pedigree, it's, uh, it's pretty 
pretty good idea that we can take Irenaeus' ideas on what are the Nicolaitans. Here's what he says. In his book, Against Heresies, Irenaeus describes the Nicolaitans as Gnostics. Fancy word, I'll explain it in a minute. Gnostics. John, the disciple of the Lord, preaches this faith and seeks by the proclamation of the gospel to remove that error disseminated among men and a long time previously by those termed Nicolaitans, who are an offset of that Gnosticism, knowledge group, falsely so-called. John wrote so that he might confound them and persuade them that there is but one God who made all things by his word. Now, here's what he's pointing out. Gnosticism was a, was a weird early heresy that did not believe that God is one God in three persons, a triune God who is sovereign. Instead, Gnosticism was a Greek-type mystery religion, like, like the mysteries of Demeter is more close to that. Um, it was about earning, one ways, earning one's way to perfection through knowledge. Gnosticism is about you know so much that you have become perfect. In Gnosticism, listen carefully, God does not speak. In Gnosticism, God does not draw people to himself. He does not redeem his creation. In fact, the Gnostic God is not even sovereign God. People work their way to the deity by being one with nature. And by the way, I don't have time to go into this, but it's a creepy, wild, and just know that it's a very licentious way of being one with nature, okay? Very, very body way of living. That's Gnosticism. Now, I remember reading this and studying this, and I used to think, well, that's kind of weird. That's old-fashioned. That's esoteric. That has nothing to do with my life. And Nicolaitans are a long ways from the America in which I live. Not anymore. I want you to listen to part of David Brooks' chilling column. This was in a very recent New York Times article. David Brooks writes this. According to the 2018 Pew poll, 29% of Americans say they believe in astrology. That's more than are members of mainline Protestant churches like Methodist, Presbyterian, etc. This surge in belief is primarily among the young. According to a National Science Foundation survey, 44% of 18 to 24-year-olds say astrology is somewhat or very scientific. I'm not making this up. They are, but I'm not. Unsurprisingly, online horoscope sites are booming. Stella Bugby, editor of The Cut, told The Atlantic in 2017 the typical horoscope got 150% more traffic than it had the year before. Another surging spiritual movement is witchcraft. In 1990, only 8,000 Americans self-identified as Wiccans. Ten years later, there were 134,000. Today, along with other neo-pagans, there are over a million. As Tara Isabel Burton put it in an excellent, deeply researched essay in The American Interest, Wicca, quote, Wicca by that estimation is technically the fastest growing religion in America, close quote. He finishes up. A final religious movement is wokeness, what some have called the Great Awakening. Burton's essay is really about how astrology and witchcraft have become important spiritual vocabularies within parts of the social justice movement, close quote. Hmm. It appears we have Nicolaitans after all. Now remember the statement about that kind of religion. The Gnostic God isn't even a God. People work their way to deity by being one with nature in a really gross, wild body way. While we love every person, we must hate those practices just as the Ephesians did. Amen? Now, of course, you're asking, well, boy wonder, what was the second question everyone asks, Catman? Thank you for asking. You remembered. It's the Synagogue of Satan line. Uh, they were slandering the Smyrna Christians. Folks wonder, was that really their name? Did they call themselves Synagogue of Satan? Probably not. Um, it, it, more likely, 
This is a mic drop kind of nickname that Jesus gives that local synagogue there. It's very unlikely they called themselves Synagogue of Satan. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but when people are really wicked, uh, true advertising tends to lower attendance, so they try to hide that. Um, but the name sure fits. The Jews who rejected Jesus in Smyrna, everything we can learn about them is they were apparently very mean. They hounded these Christians, which, which the way they did it exposes the roots of, of demonization in their words and actions. Okay, that's the encouragement. Now, on the right side of our notes, we get to the next point. Jesus exhorts, and we're going to start with Ephesus. He exhorts through the Ephesians. Verse 4 and 5, let's read them again. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember how, then how far you've fallen. Repent and do the work you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is really serious. Jesus says, return or lose your lampstand. Through Ephesus, the Lord reminds churches they can be punished if they build poorly, if they're unrepentant. Now, theologians love to debate this passage. There, there are many, many, many books written. They like to fight over what does it mean to lose a church's lampstand. I don't know. I can tell you this. The bottom line of all the arguments is this. A removed lampstand means the ending of your effective witness as Jesus' redeemed community. Whatever else it means, that's what's at stake. And that's the sad path the Ephesians are on. Ephesus appears to be a burned out church. Remember the signs we saw earlier? Burnout, loss of care for people, lack of energy or purpose, reduced effectiveness in serving, and increased cynicism, jaundice, right? That's why Jesus exhorts Ephesus. He loves them. And he wants them to take his prescription for healing, for spiritual healing. And the prescription is three things. Love, repent, and work. First, love. Again, this, this is also an area of great debate. Um, is Jesus saying that they lack love for Jesus or for the brethren? The answer is it doesn't matter because the two are connected. Loving Jesus leads to loving people. Any lack of loving people is directly tied to a lack of love for God. It's a huge theme throughout all of John's writings. More than any other New Testament writer, John develops a theology of, of love. He shows the connection between love for God and love for his people. I don't have time to develop this in depth, but let me just briefly trace for you John's theology of love. Okay, here's how it fleshes out in John. It begins this way. Love originates with Christ. 1 John 4, many, many other passages. We love because he first loved us, right? So it begins with the love of God, love from God. Then the second step in John's theology, John 21, many, many other passages, when that love is received, it sparks a reciprocal love for God, right? Because I'm loved, therefore I love him. I'm so grateful for his love for me that I don't deserve that I love him back. John 15 and others tell us that if I will, if I will abide in that, if I'll dwell in it, put down roots in it, live in it, if I'll obey in that love, then that love flourishes. It just grows and grows and grows. In fact, effervescent words are used by John to describe how that love bubbles up, how it grows. And then 1 John 4 and John 21, et cetera, et cetera, shows that love overflows to the brethren. Got it? Okay, so when someone, or a whole church of someone's in this case, is told by God through John they have lost their first love, it means they have stopped abiding in obedient love. The break has got to be here. It has to be there. It can't, it can't be, you can't stop God loving you. It's not possible. You cannot make him love you more or less. And since you can't stop that, it has to be the one thing that he tells us to do, which is to abide. When you are not loving anymore, the break is in your abiding. So how can a Christian recover from that? Do what you're told to do. Abide in Jesus' love. 
When we immerse ourselves in Jesus' love for us, it, it effervesces in our heart, in our soul. You've, you've felt this. I know many of you have. And then it actively overflows into love for him and the brethren, and everything changes. January 1st, 2013, Rika Schmidt-Kiargaard, a Danish lady, became very, very ill. And she went to her doctor. He said it was the flu, which actually is a reasonable diagnosis, but actually she had bacterial meningitis. And on the next day, January 2nd, she slipped into a coma that lasts several weeks. As she fought her way out of that comatose state over the next few months, and by the way, it's never like the movies. You're just not suddenly awake and feeling great. It's a very difficult back and forth. She was panicked. She was confused. She was exhausted as she tried to come out of the coma. Here's what she writes about that time. The only things that comforted me were seeing my husband and hearing the sound of his voice. Unable to move my head, I longed for him to enter my fixed, limited view to make me relax. He was the person I could remember. He was my safe haven. He would help me. And he did, close quote. Now you read that, and you get a glimpse as to why Jesus calls himself the groom to our bride, don't you? When we're wiped out, when we are burned out by sin, when we need love to get better, Jesus is right there in our vision. He is our safe haven. He says, abide in me. He is our hope and our help. And that leads directly to us becoming richer and healthier and more loving and overflowing with love for him, and that goes out to love to other people. When we comprehend the first love, the depth of God's love for us, then we love him back. And loving him back, we love his kids, our brethren. John recorded this summary. Uh, Jesus said this, John chapter 14. You read the underlying text with me. Uh, 34 and 35 of John 14. I give you a new command to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also must love one another. By this, all people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Amen. How can a, how can a church or a Christian return love and repent? Repent spoken twice in verse 5. The Greek term is metanoieo. Uh, it's a term for changing course. It's based on a Hebrew word for turning around. But, but metanoieo is more than just the Hebrew word. It, it uses a great, a great Greek term for mind, naos, okay? And thus it gets to the core idea. Here's the core idea. It's, it's changed thinking that leads to changed living. In other words, metanoieo means that I cannot turn to Jesus, return to Jesus without changing my mind. Actually, our modern psychologists got pretty close to metanoia with their phrase mental reorientation. Remember what Dr. Seagal said? Reframe the way you look at things. Reframe the way you look. Have any of you Christians here ever been out of sync with God? Um, burned out or snarled in sin or, or just distant from God? Needing a hand up or maybe, maybe you needed a swift kick in the pants from God, which happens. Whatever the manifestation, I'd like you to do this. Raise your hand if you have ever needed this exhortation of Jesus to repent. You've ever needed to repent, to change your mind. Yeah, me too. All right, then you know what happens. When I change my mind, when I reframe my thinking, I'm renewed by God. Suddenly, I I, I see clearly, I, I see my sin, I see myself clearly. I see Jesus for who he really is, and that, that begins to move me out of my blindness, right? I want to show you an example. Uh, you've seen these before. The videos are very popular. This one really struck me. It's a, a video of a fellow who's been colorblind all his life, and he has the glasses for the first time that allow him to see color. Uh, it's very brief, but I want you to take a look and listen. Does it make any difference? Yeah. 
immensely. What's my color of my shirt, man? <laughs> Red and black. He actually sees it. He said it was gray earlier and black. What color is your shirt that you see that? Holy cow. <laughs> he meant to wear an OU shirt. He's really sad, yeah. Isn't that amazing? Holy cow. Oh, look, that's me. That's us when we repent. We, we realize we've been seeing things all wrongly. We've been wearing the wrong colors, and we cry out to the Lord, Oh, my God, help me. Change my mind. How do you return? Love, repent, and do your first works. Now, what were the first works? It can't mean working hard because they're still doing that. God praised them for that. It, it can't mean good works because the Ephesians are doing those. God praised them for that. So what are the first works. 2 John 5, I think, can help us understand what he means here. Read the underlying text. 2 John 5, I'm writing to remind you, dear friends, that we should love one another. This is not a new commandment, but one we've had from the beginning. And to make sure we get it, verse 6 in this very short letter says the same thing again. Your first work is to love people as God commanded from the very beginning to do the things we were told at the very beginning of the churches. Here's what the Ephesians were like. 50 years earlier, when they were just getting started, here's what the Ephesians were like. Uh, Paul says, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. How awesome is that? That's how they began. They trusted Jesus that led to good work, and the first good work is love. Agape, by the way, is the Greek word in our text for love. It's the, it's the great word of self-sacrificing love. Remember what it's like <clears throat> when you're just beginning a serious love relationship, right? You're, you're always sacrificing for your sweetheart. Always. Without, without sometimes even consciously meaning to, you're just continually sacrificing for that sweetheart. That's the first love. That's how you begin. Um, girls, <clears throat> give me some examples. Raise your hand. Give an example of how does a guy, at, especially at the beginning of a relationship, how does a man show you that, that he is self-sacrificing, he loves you. How does he show you that? Raise your hand and tell us, how does he show you? Yes. Shaves every day. <laughs> yes, and he still is. That's very nice to see. The first works are continuing, that's good. It'd been much funnier if Bob had had a big beard, wouldn't that have been awesome? Yes. Go shopping. Wow. That, is, that should be the picture by Agape. And you know, when I, when I was younger, they always had chairs in women's stores. They don't anymore. And that's a problem. All you people in retail, let's get on that because it makes it harder. All right, what else? What do you got? How, what, is, what does the guy do to show you his affection? First things, how does he show you his love? Give me one more. Come on, girls. What? Yes. Open the door. Open the door. Open the door. I, I love how I learned that when I was, I was in college. And I had been trained that way to show uh, honor to anybody about the door, but especially for a girl. I was on a date. It wasn't even a date. It was a friend. It was my friend Kelly. We were not dating at all. And in college, we were going to a movie, and we were late. And so we pulled up, and I, and I parked my car, and I said, come on, Kelly, we got to go. We got to hurry. And I got out, and I'm running to the parking lot, and I hear this horn going off. I was like, wow, what? Somebody's back. And I was like, Kelly, can you? Kelly, who? What's the horn? Kelly. And I go back. And she is in my car, and she is sitting there. And I opened the door, and she said, that's better. And then we got out and went. Okay. I learned. I learned. I can be taught. Uh, dudes, guys, raise your hands. What does, a, what does a girl do 
that shows you that she really, she cares. She is self-sacrificing for you. And I know there are many, many things, but try to think of first things. What are the things that happen in the beginning of a relationship? How does she show you her affection? Come on. Only, only, only share with the whole class. Thank you. Yes. Tolerate your self-absorption. This could be called codependency. Um, <laughs> yes, yes, that's true, that's true. What else, yes? Wants to spend time with you. Wants to do what, you're, what you wanna do. Uh, and it's reciprocal both ways. Um, it is kinda sad when that one doesn't last though. Honey, remember how you used to watch football with me? Well, then we got married, yeah. Um, yeah, what do you got, what do you got? Cook, it's a sweet thing. It doesn't even matter what it is. It's just otherwise I'm eating Pop-Tarts, so that's great. <laughs> yeah, that's good. All right, those things are precious, but have you thought about how sad it is when they don't continue? All right? Just think about relationships, not just marital relationships, but all relationships. When those don't continue, it's sad. One of the ones that, um, that I hear often, I didn't hear it here, is uh, writing notes, writing little notes. I, every time I'd go to my car, there was a little note under my windshield or something like that. Uh, that needs to continue, men and women. Look, otherwise, it becomes tragic. Neil Diamond and Alan Lindgren wrote a really poignant poem about it. Uh, they wrote, you don't bring me flowers. You don't sing me love songs. You hardly talk to me anymore when you come through the door at the end of the day. It used to be so natural to talk about forever, but used-to-be's don't count anymore. They just lay on the floor until we sweep them away. The problem is not just a marriage. It's in all relationships. We must keep active and humble and fresh by doing the first works and doing the things that require us to show up and engage, right? We work. Amen? All right. Looking again at verse 10. Verse 10. Let's read it again. This is Smyrna. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus exhorts all Christians of all time through the letter to Smyrna also. Now, now the exhortations to Smyrna are shorter, and they are, they are much milder than Ephesus, but they are no less important. First thing the Lord says is don't be afraid. There's a nasty season coming for the Smyrnans. Uh, the persecution Jesus mentions, by the way, has to be governmental, otherwise he wouldn't, he wouldn't bring up prisons. Ten days, what is that? Well, that's likely shorthand for a period longer than a week, but less than a fortnight. Uh, it was kind of a general phrase. By the way, it's used that way two different times in the Bible, and it may be the same here but it's not just imprisonment via this missive to Smyrna the Lord calls Christians to endure affliction do you see that poverty slander imprisonment and that has continued through the series through the through the centuries right I mean you I, I, I trust you realize our era may be the worst time of persecution in all of church history we see affliction and poverty today especially as Christians are fired just for believing in the Bible which happens increasingly. Slander is certainly an active problem today, is it not? If you have any doubts, just ask one of those Christian bakers who are falsely called more vile names than I can even imagine. Imprisonment is a reality for many thousands, tens of thousands of our brethren around the world. Here's what's happened. Because Christianity has risen so quickly in communist and Islamic lands, there are more Christians imprisoned than ever before in human history. Jesus knows that's coming for Smyrna and for others, and yet he says, don't be afraid. How is that possible? To not be, that's scary. How can you not be afraid? Jesus tells us how. Remain faithful, he says. That is, remain full of faith. Trust God. By trusting God, we endure our fears, and we even grow through them. Chuck Swindoll commented on this 40 years ago he did, and it's really, really good. He said, when we hang with God through our times of trial, we will receive special favor from God. We'll be blessed. 
Depending on God through suffering brings an understanding about life, you guys know this, that we would not otherwise gain. A deeper insight gives us the ability to make some sense out of our anguish and to learn how to be content in spite of it, close quote. A friend of mine is going through a terrible ordeal right now, a terrible ordeal. And she wrote us a letter last week. Here's how she put it. She said, I know I'm allowed to feel less than cheerful, less than happy. I just never want to be less than faithful. We know David had his tormented moments and he expressed them. He took his joy to God, but he also brought his sadness, his devastation, his anger. We're allowed to feel these things, but they should lead us to God always. Amen. Remember that Irenaeus that we met earlier? He was discipled by Polycarp, who, by the way, is not a Pokemon, in case you're wondering. Um, he, uh, his name means, his name means uh, much fruit. Uh, Polycarp was very likely at Smyrna when Jesus gave this letter to John. Polycarp ended up pastoring the largest uh, church there and, and grew it very well over a number of years, but sadly, he experienced the exact persecution Jesus promised. Uh, here's what happened to Polycarp, Irenaeus' uh, mentor. Um, this comes from the best account I can find is written many hundred years later Fox's Book of Martyrs Polycarp was brought before the angry citizens of Smyrna in 155 he was told to swear allegiance to Antoninus Pius who was the emperor at the time and blaspheme Christ he refused even when threatened with death by wild beasts Polycarp said how shall I blaspheme my king who saved me then they threatened with fire Polycarp said you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is soon extinguished but you should be concerned with the fire of eternal punishment the Jews and Gentiles of Smyrna then gathered wood. By the way, this is on the Sabbath. Hmm. They gathered wood and burned Polycarp alive. Now, horrible as that is, Polycarp's right. That's the worst they can do. That is the worst they can do. So don't be afraid. The worst they can do is burn you with fire that lasts but an hour. That is nothing compared with eternity. Remain faithful like Polycarp and keep your eyes on the prize. Smyrna hosted some Greek athletic games, and that's very likely the image Jesus has in mind here when he talks about the prize. Everybody's part of the race. All are Olympians, or in their case, all are Smyrnans, but only those who win get the crown as a reward. In a similar way, this crown that Jesus promises is a special reward. Uh, Robert Thomas explains, look what he says. The Stephanos, that's the word used in our Greek New Testament, the crown of life mentioned in verse 10. The Stephanos is a special reward only for those who are faithful through martyrdom. James 1 has an almost exact parallel. Look, James 1, 12. Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life God has promised to those who love him. Now, don't conflate crown of life, life there, with eternal resurrected life, eternal resurrected life that is guaranteed to all Christians. Um, whatever this reward is, this Stephano, so we don't know exactly, it's likely called the crown of life because it's given to those who are willing to face death, Right? Friends, Jesus promises us affliction. You know that, right? Just because we're connected to him. And the world hates him, so it's going to hate us. So just take a breath and keep your eyes on the prize. After all, you have done the same thing for earthly rewards that don't even last. Think of all the hours you have spent practicing sewing and piano and math and running and hundreds of other, other things, all of which are fine, but you've done it for mere earthly rewards. And while those are fine, none of them compares to eternal blessings, to a Stephanos crown. So if you have fought through peer, fear and pain for a trophy here on earth, surely you can do the same for an eternal Stephanos crown. Amen? Okay, let's close by reading the last words to each church. Verse 7. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. 
Verse 11, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. The Lord assures through these two churches. Uh, first, we're assured about the triunity of God. The, the major theological aspect of Revelation 2 through 3 is the Trinity. God the Father is specifically mentioned. The Son speaks with divine authority. Look, he's named as creator in these letters, as the author of Scripture. He holds judgment responsibility. That's divine things. The Spirit is repeatedly identified in such a way that he is clearly one with the Son. So we're assured that what Jesus says, the Spirit says, the Father says, there is no disagreement. There is a triune God who is one. Secondly, we're assured about millennial and eternal blessings that are going to be ours. I'm going to explain more deeply in later messages, but let me just summarize this by saying now, the one who conquers seems best understood, and I'll explain more in depth, but it seems best understood as referring to anyone who believes in Jesus because they are in Jesus. God places them in Christ, and he has overcome. He has conquered all. Amen? The one who conquers is someone who trusts in Christ. Look at the blessings that those people are promised. Eat of the tree of life in God's paradise. Be unharmed by the second death. By the way, does that first one sound familiar? Eat of the tree of life? If so, that's because it's full circle from Genesis 3, and you remember the Adam and Eve story. Adam and Eve sinned. You know what God should have done? What would have been fair, completely fair and just? Let them eat from the tree of life. You know what that would have accomplished? They and every single one of their offspring through all human history would have been tainted with sin with absolutely no way to change that. They would live forever with sin, unable to change it. That's, that's hellacious. Ponce de Leon was an idiot, okay? Who wants to continue this life forever with all the brokenness that is part of this life? That's absurd. But that's what would have happened. God loved them so much that he kicked them out of the garden and protected them from eating that tree of life, which would have sealed them in their sin forever. But look at this. You know what Jesus does to all who believe in Christ? He removes sin permanently from believers at the very end in a process called glorification in our Bible. And Christians who enter God's paradise, they get to partake from that very tree from which Adam and Eve were excluded. How awesome is that? Can I get a hallelujah? And to be unharmed by the second death? What? No hellfire for those who trust Christ. You know we cannot be tried and found guilty again. You know why? It'd be double jeopardy. Jesus already paid the price. We are in Christ. And he was already, he already took the guilty sentence that we deserve and he did not. And because of that, we cannot be tried again. It, it is something that must not and cannot ever be paid again. And since he rose in glory, we are raised with him. And the second death has no hold on us. Amen. Pray with me about that. Let's pray together. Father, I want to pray, first of all, for anybody studying with us, wherever they are, that does not know Jesus as Savior. Lord, it is so encouraging to see the notes that we get from people all over who come to faith in Christ through all these wonderful means you have, and I pray that you will do the same today. Friend, wherever you are, listen, you are not holy. It's a fact. I know. You are sinful. But God, who is perfect, loves you so much that he sent Jesus, the very Son of God. Fully God, he came. 
fully man he was born, and he died on a Roman cross, giving up his own life willingly. No one took it from him. And he rose from the dead so that those who trust him could have everlasting life. If you've never trusted Jesus, do so right now. Believe on him. If you just trusted Jesus as Savior, everybody else is still praying. Raise your hand. I just want to rejoice with you. Good. Amen. Father, I pray for these new believers in Christ and for those of us who've been believers for some time. Please, please, please help us love and endure. We need your assistance for everything but especially these. In Jesus' name, amen.